This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 660, and we welcome back after a 12-year hiatus from the show, Dr. Andy Persley from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, we're going to talk today about CO2 and ventilation, indoor air quality, maybe a little on infectious air, airborne transmission. So uh, looking forward to a great show. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show to continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com. April Air, April, A-I-R-E.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to report that Don Weeks from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, was first to identify Wallace H. Coulter as the American who patented a method for counting and sizing microscopic particles suspended in a fluid. The IQ Radio Tribute question for today, April 8th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's IAQ Radio's trivia question. At what time does counting solar mean time begin? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today, we welcome back Dr. Andrew Persley. He's a fellow at the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, where he's worked for four decades. His research has focused on indoor air quality and ventilation in commercial and residential buildings, including the development and application of measurement techniques and predictive models. He's published more than 300 journal articles, conference papers, and NIST reports. Dr. Persley was a vice president of ASHRAE back in 2007 to 2009. He's a past chair of ASHRAE Standard 62.1, the Ventilation for Acceptable Indoor Air Quality Standard, and he's a fellow of ASHRAE, ASTM, ISIAC, and a recipient of the NIST Bronze, Silver, and Gold Medals. Welcome back, Dr. Persley. Thanks very much. It's great to be here and good to see everybody. Always good to have you. Um, it's been too long, 12 years, unfortunately. I, I, 
I was kind of shocked when I saw that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't have remembered if you didn't tell me. I was going to uh, go back and listen to the tape broadcast yesterday, but I had just eaten lunch and I didn't want to, you know, upset my stomach. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't able to find the time, but I'll have to, uh, I'll have to do that sometimes. I'm glad you did, though. Well, I did. I went back and I listened. Also, we're going to uh, next week is Good Friday and the start of Passover, I believe, and uh, Easter's coming up. So we usually do like a flashback show. I think we're going to do that one next week for those that didn't get a chance to hear us 12 years ago. It holds up really, really well. Um, But since then, your position at, at NIST has changed. Can you tell people what you do now? Sure, sure. So 12 years ago, I was the uh, the leader of the indoor air quality and ventilation group. And I had probably been doing it for about 12 years, at, well, maybe for 20 years at that point. And kind of halfway between this 12-year hiatus, I became chief of the building energy and environment division. So here, here you're showing the, the page for the group that I led for total of 25 years, but then about seven years ago, I became um, um, division chief of the overall building energy and environment division, which included the indoor air quality work, and some, you know, HVAC and our hardware, you know, work and, and, and so on. And then about a year ago, I was named a NIST fellow, which was a tremendous honor. It's like, I think there's 40 fellows at NIST. And, and when you know, and they're sitting there. And when one of them dies or retires, they, you know, they open up the chair for another fellow. And I was, you know, awarded the great honor of becoming a this fellow, and which means no supervisory responsibilities, less email, uh, less fewer meetings. And I'm supposed to like, you know, uh, do some uh, research. And uh, they even give me a little money for a postdoc. So it's it's really great. You know, my Outlook on life is, is much improved. You'll, for people who know me, you'll, you'll, you'll notice today that I'm much less crotchety than usual. <laughs> yeah, you're also, now NIST is part of Department of Commerce, is that? And it's a huge organization. I mean, you, you cover a lot of things. Well, maybe it's not as big as when you look at the perspective of government organizations, <laughs> maybe NIST isn't as big as, as huge, but. A big organization does a lot of things. I don't think people realize um, how much work is done through NIST. Yeah, and as you say, it's part of the Department of Commerce, and there's all sorts of cool stuff. I think there's about 2,500 or so people in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and then another 500 in Boulder. Um, It's been around for more than 100 years. And it's one of uh, two national labs created by an act of Congress. I can't remember what the other one is, but it's a good trivia question. Ah. And, we, and actually, the, the new NIST, a new NIST director was just confirmed by the Senate yesterday, Lori Lacasio. And so we're all we're all excited to see how she, you know, await her fingerprint on the on the organization. You know, I. I when I listened back to the other, the old show, I was, I, I, I was, we were talking about what's called the EPA base study and, and, and how you were a part of that and how important that was. And I just thought I'd really like to bring it up again, because I don't think enough people realize what that was. And, and when we talked the other day, you told me how it got started. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, Hopefully you won't compare what I said 12 years ago. My, my recollection is that 
you know, so this is kind of the mid 80s or something. And there's always in there air quality studies and people are, you know, they tend to focus on problem buildings, you know, where there's a lot of complaints. And so they go in and, and they learn that, you know, 40% of the occupants had a headache last week. Oh my God, you know, or they learned that they measure this contaminant and it's this high. And the idea of the base study was to measure buildings that weren't on the front page of the paper, you know, buildings that weren't notorious problem buildings and see how many headaches they had last week and how high the VOC levels were and what were the ventilation rates. So it was to establish a baseline so we could compare all these other, you know, supposedly more problematic situations. And there was a hundred randomly selected selected office buildings in the US. And, you know, but, but one thing I'll note, maybe I said it 12 years ago, if you go to any building and look around, you will find problems, you know? You know, if, and you, you might not have to look that hard. <clears throat> they may not be problems, you know, that, that are <clears throat> causing, you know, death and severe disease, but superior operation and maintenance is, is rare. So, so that was kind of the base study. I think most of the measurements were made in the mid-90s, um, if I recall right. It was kind of a foundation for people to look at. Okay, now here we, we have this. I mean, and who else would do that kind of, who could do that kind of research? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was run by EPA, but they brought together a big group of people to uh, um, um, basically design the protocol. Right. And, and there was a, a similar project done in Europe afterwards, the European audit project. But it's kind of, you know, it's different. It's different buildings, you know, different priorities. And nothing really has been done since there was a there was a study in California did. And I think small commercial buildings, small and medium commercial buildings. I can't remember how many they did. And they kind of built off the base protocol to a degree. But you know, it still comes up occasionally. Somebody says, is there any data out there on, you know, thermal comfort and office buildings? Well, that's a bad example because there is some of that, but there's, you know, it, it does come up still and, and, and nothing has been done since. And it's still quite relevant. The, you know, a lot of data was collected and only, I think, a fraction of it has really been analyzed. Interesting. Now, this was back in the 80s. Um, and through the nineties. And I guess I was, I've always wondered like, how, how does the change in administrations, the change in topics, the change in times affect the type of research done through NIST? You know, I mean, NIST overall is, you know, that that's a bigger question. You know, I mean, that's a lot of what NIST does, does is driven by inter, industry needs, you know, and where innovation is happening you know, I mean, a good example is as, you know, semiconductors and, and, and microelectronics and all that stuff have moved and moved, gotten smaller and smaller. The measurement of length and small lengths has become really important to that industry. And so NIST has, you know, progressed in their, you know, measuring, you know, the, the accuracy of, of length measurements and small length measurements and all oh, the time stuff they measure, you know, links directly to GPS technology and all that. So, you know, if you went to the, that website again, I, I don't know what's on there, but it'd be cybersecurity and, and automated manufacturing. And, uh, you know, I don't know, forensics is still there, but, 
you know, and, and I mean, those are kind of the big issues, you know, there's information technology, nanotechnology, resilience, you know, so those are kind of driven by, you know, um, not just administration priorities and congressional priorities, but also, you know, industry. You know, a lot of what this does is driven by industry and techniques to support, you know, support innovation, you know, to support U.S. industry um, in, in this crazy global, global marketplace. You know, then when you kind of get down to a topic like indoor air quality, you know, <clears throat> you know, that's driven by <clears throat> similar motivation, but just, you know, building is Building construction and design is not high tech, uh, high tech industry. <clears throat> it evolves slowly. And, um, you know, the IT people, you know, they're changing like this, you know, yeah. the building industry, you know, someone does some research, someone writes a standard, someone writes a building code. It takes a long, long time for things to change and new, cool new technologies developed all the time. But, you know, if I'm building, you know, if I need to replace my roof shingles. I don't want to use the shingles that just came out last week. I want someone else to use those for a couple of years. Oh, they're good. You know, now I'll put them on my roof, you know, down the road. You know, you don't, you don't want necessarily to go out on a limb on your building. Um, and, and I'm kind of rambling. I, I'm sorry, but you know, the, on the indoor air quality side, <clears throat> as uh, I think, uh, I think we talked about the other day, you know, we've been doing work on airflow in buildings and how to measure it and how to predict it and, and contaminant transport in buildings. You know, and when I first got involved in the late 70s, it was really motivated by, you know, kind of the first energy crisis. It was all about energy efficiency. And then, you know, the uh, awareness of indoor air quality issues came up. You know, so a lot of what we were doing was motivated by indoor air quality. And then over time, the motivations evolved. Sorry, you know, there was a lot of concern for a while there about chem-bioterrorism and intentional or accidental releases, you know, and then we got, you know, more into green buildings and sustainability, and, you know, and, and um, you know, and, and, and now, you know, we're kind of interested in, uh, again, in, in airborne infectious disease transmission. And there's some other kind of big trends, you know, the good news, is that the physics hasn't changed, you know, air still airflow is still driven by pressure. You know, there are holes in building walls. There are ventilation systems and fans and ducts moving things. So the physics hasn't changed. It's the motivation and some of the specifics have evolved over time due to, you know, some of these external, you know, pushes. Well, the, the reason I got back in touch with you, and I, I, it was way too long, but I saw the paper that came out from, from ASHRAE. I guess it's a position document, they call them now. Um, and this was on CO2. I'm trying, I want to make sure I have the indoor <coughs> carbon dioxide. Um, I don't have the title right in front of me at the moment here. Yeah, that's basically what it's called. Yeah, yeah, it's indoor carbon dioxide. And and I saw you had worked on that paper. You were part of a group of people. And it's it's one of those topics we've talked a lot about. And and sometimes it's it's confusing for you because uh, it seems like things change a little bit. You know, at one time we thought, well, indoor carbon dioxide is just a, a surrogate for maybe other indoor air quality issues. And then 
you know, you, you see some research that says, well, wait, maybe it's more than that. Maybe it is actually a, a pollutant. And I thought, you know, let's let's get uh, let's get Andy back on here and let's talk a little bit about this document and see what we really know today about CO2. So maybe first you could tell us a little bit about the background, why the document was developed, and uh, then we'll get into some specifics. Sure, sure. I mean, I will point out that an ASHRAE position document is, is, is really, you know, it's approved by the ASHRAE Board of Directors. So it's a statement of what ASHRAE thinks about a topic. You know, so it's pretty high level. You know, there's position documents on uh, climate change and energy efficiency and indoor air quality and filtration. So it's not a design guide. You know, it's not a it's it's, it's not a technical you know, report. Obviously, there, there's technical matters are discussed. But the feeling was that, you know, after decades of, you know, I'll call it confusion or, or mischaracterization of why indoor CO2 concentrations matter, you know, there was a feeling on the part of some that ASHRAE should write a position document on indoor CO2. And this was before the pandemic that this happened. And, you know, I won't mention any names unless you really push me. But, you know, this individual who was pushing this, he wasn't going to write it. You know, he said, Andy should, you know, Andy should write it. And, and uh, <laughs> I said, you know, well, not not this month, you know, but I'll do it later on. And, uh, you know, so we, you know, we, we started the process. The committee was fantastic. If you look at the roster, there's, a, you know, a lot of. Uh, uh, real sharp people who did a ton of work and, and and I as chair you know I was chair but they you know yeah you can see lots of names of, of very capable people from around the world you know who are involved in this and so um, you know we, we got together and so if, if you read you know there's a little history section in there people have been talking about carbon dioxide in the context of building ventilation and indoor air quality for hundreds of years you know, it's, it's, it's not new and it's a pretty, you know, a pretty interesting, uh, you know, as you get older, you, you like history more, right? <clears throat> then when you're younger, it's like, who cares? But <clears throat> there's some interesting stuff there. That's the short section. There's a much longer one in the back, but it, it's been a topic of interest for a long time. And, um, you know, in like within the last hundreds of years, <clears throat> as we, you know, you know, I guess the first uh, ventilation standard in the U.S., I think it was 1946. And there was a ventilation standard for New York public schools, I think, about 100 years ago. And so uh, carbon dioxide started to get into that discussion, in part, you know, because it's a, you know, it's a good surrogate for the bioeffluence that people re- release. So when people do their metabolism, they reduce they release CO2 at a rate that's proportional to how active they are, you know, doing metabolism, whether they're running or sitting or sleeping. And, it, you know, people also emit these bioeffluents, these products of metabolism that don't always smell real good, you know. And so the first kind of ventilation studies were focused on the control of the perception of body odor. And, and so they measured you know, they asked people how, how bad they thought the odor was, and they also measured CO2. So there, you know, that's kind of was the technical link. And, and then, you know, what, what happened is the first version 
not the first version. I think that the, the 1981 version of standard 60, ASHRAE standard 62 had a 2,500 ppm CO2 limit. And then they changed it to 1,000 in the 1989 standard. And then after that, it was eliminated. Well, I often like, you know, people still say that, you know, they measured CO2 and it was below the ASHRAE limit of 1,000. Well, ASHRAE has not had a limit of 1,000 for more than 30 years. You know, and I often say if I had a nickel for every time I read that, still, you know, in, in, new, pub, in new publications, in high-level academic journals, people are still saying that. And so that was, you know, one motivation was to, un, to help people understand what CO2 means, this whole body odor perception connection, what the standards say, because <clears throat> why ASHRAE doesn't have a limit, other, other documents do. And, and the other thing about CO2 is it's a convenient tracer gas. And, and there's all these tracer gas methods for characterizing ventilation in buildings. And CO2 is a very convenient tracer gas because it's easy to measure. And you have a built-in injection mechanism, which is the people. You know, so it's, it's, long, it's been used as a tracer gas. Some people don't really understand that. And they don't appreciate that tracer gas methods are documented and standardized, and <clears throat> there's no mystery there. And, and so uh, we talked about that as well in the document. You know, there has been, if you kind of alluded to this, in recent years, there has been some research showing that CO2 concentrations kind of in line with what you might, you know, observe in a building, you know, <clears throat> you know not in a building that's sealed up and has no ventilation, but it's kind of a normal level in the, you know, 1000 PPM range. Um, so there have been some studies showing some effects on human cognition or cognitive performance, but there have been other studies that didn't see those effects, you know, and so we wanted to present, you know, those inconsistent results and, you know, inconsistent results as part of life, you know, and as part of science and they need to be investigated, you know, before we rewrite everything, you know, rewrite all the standards. Um, so there was that motivation, you know, and then, uh, you know, with the pandemic, there's been a lot more interest in, in CO2 measurement and interpretation. And there's all these low cost monitors coming on in the market and people are, you know, running around and measuring and it's good to run around and measure, but it's kind of like, you need to understand what it means. And while this is not a technical guide to the measurement interpretation of indoor CO2 levels. I think it, hopefully it frames the bigger picture. And one of the recommendations in there is to develop, you know, the more detailed technical guidance for practitioners. Let's, let's break it down. I, I yeah, have it, yeah, it was broken wrong. down sort of like the paper did. The first in this segment is on CO2 as an IAQ metric. Um, interesting discussion. What are your, what are your, yeah. maybe you can summarize for us what, what that means and, and what you, what you came out with. Well, you know, some, you know, again, you know, if you read things out there, people will say, you know, I, I measured CO2, it was below whatever it was, and therefore my indoor air quality is good. Well, you know, there are lots of contaminants in buildings that are not going to be related to the CO2 level, you know, <clears throat> contaminants associated with, uh, emissions from furniture, <clears throat> for example, or uh, contaminants that enter from outside, or all sorts of things. You know, 
contaminants that are proportional to the number of occupants in a space, you know, maybe those will be linked to the CO2 concentration. But there's a lot of there's a lot of other important contaminants. So, you know, while CO2 might be a useful tool, it's it's not, you know, in the uh, position document, you know, clearly states that it's not a comprehensive uh, um, metric of indoor air quality in general. Indoor air quality is too big to be captured by a single contaminant and certainly a single contaminant that's only driven by the occupants. Okay. And and the next, yes, the next segment is assessment of ventilation rates using CO2 as a tracer gas. By the way, I'll get to some of these text questions in in a little bit here. Um, I think this one is, at least the impression I got was that this is a really common use for CO2 and that um, it's for the most part being used appropriately. Would you, is that, I go ahead. It's it's a mixed bag. You know, I think some people, well, basically, you know, tracer gas techniques, the idea there is you you release something in the air and, and, you know, and then you, you you monitor it, do a little math and you can back out an air change rate or some information about air distribution. People have been doing that for, almost 100 years. Oldest paper I have is 1935, doing the tracer gas decay decay method, where they release a a gas that wouldn't be there normally. They mix it up, and then they monitor the concentration decay over time, and they can get the air change rate. You know, there's a few different tracer gas techniques. There's an ASTM standard. There's an ISO standard. It's it's well-established, well-documented. And as I said earlier, CO2 is easier to measure than some other tracer gases, and you have a built-in injection mechanism in terms of the occupants. Um, Or you can just release CO2 from a fire extinguisher or something else in an unoccupied building. But not all people who do these tests realize that there's, you know, a well-documented methodology, and there, you know, which has assumptions and limitations and so on. So they might do it and not really have educated themselves into what, you know, what's behind the method and verified that they're doing it properly. You know, some people will run in, grab a concentration, and then back out a, a ventilation rate, at, which can be done, but, it, you know, to do that correctly, you know, you have to assume that your the concentration is achieved steady state and that all these other things are constant and and if you don't do that, you may draw erroneous conclusions. Well, you have to compare it to the outdoors as well, I guess, because yeah, that can change. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's really a relative thing compared to the outside. And, you know, and, and that might not be the biggest source of the error. But if, as long as you're measuring it inside, measure it outside. So you've got some, you know, basis because outside is not a constant, you know, especially in urban areas and certain times of the day and times of the year. And I think a lot of what this did was pointed out mistakes that you should try to avoid, I guess, when, when, when dealing with CO2 or using CO2 to help characterize building environments. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, you know, make a measurement, you need to understand how to do it. Right. You know, you can't, you know, and, and, and my, you know, my career, you know, every time I wanted to measure something new, you know, I never measured CO before. And it's like, 
No, no problem. You buy the CO monitor, you put plug it in, and you're rolling. And I mean, every time I've had to measure something, it's like, oh, brother, I got to learn a whole new thing. There's all these issues. You know, this monitor has its quirks, or this contaminant, you know, has, you know, is affected by temperature or something, you know, and it's always more complicated than you want it to be. Nothing, I mean, even temperature, you know, it, you know, temperature can be impacted by, you know, if you have a cold surface or a hot surface and your thermometer may have radiated interchange or if, you know, the, the air is moving or the air is not moving or the sun shining, it's, you know, it's never easy, you know, <laughs> you got to, you got to understand and talk to someone who knows and they're going to, you know, it, it could be discouraging at first, but you'll be, you're better off if you understand the measurement technology and how to apply it. You're much more likely to get some useful information. Now, another topic in the paper was the control of outdoor air ventilation based on CO2 concentrations, which is, I think, a real common thing that's, that's occurring in buildings today. Where, um, what are some of the issues that people should be concerned with when, when using CO2 to help with controlling ventilation rates? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I don't design HVAC systems or develop, you know, the controls, but, you know, people have been using, you know, CO2, you know, a lot of ventilation systems, especially in commercial buildings, you know, they, they have to have, a, you know, part of the design is how much outdoor air do you need to bring in? And that's usually based on the design occupancy, right? And so there are some spaces where you're not necessarily going to be at the design occupancy all that often or, or, or all that regularly, conference rooms, movie theaters, auditoriums, and so on. And so from an energy efficiency perspective, why ventilate at the design occupancy where you might be at, at a quarter of the design occupancy, 10% or no occupants. So it's an energy efficiency opportunity to ventilate, you know, for the actual occupancy and CO2 demand control is a way to do that. And it's been around for decades and it's actually required by some energy efficiency standards. You know, ASHRAE standard 90.1 requires demand control ventilation for certain spaces, high occupancy spaces. I can't, I can't remember exactly how it's written. And, and so it's an energy efficiency uh, strategy. It's also, you know, it, it can ensure that you provide enough outdoor air, you know. So if your occupancy is high, that, that you're getting enough air to meet the ventilation requirements based on the actual occupancy. So it's good for indoor air quality, too. You know, there's issues of how many controls, you know, how many sensors do you put in? Where do you put them? How often do you calibrate them? You know, if the control algorithms, you know, the math that the control system uses to take that reading and control the damper. Um, there, uh, and, and how do you lay that out? And that, that's not, you know, you want to talk to a real design engineer. But I will, talk, I will not mention it by name, but there was a famous green building that had CO2 demand control. And it had the sensors and it had signals but it had no mechanism for adjusting the, the uh, outdoor air damper. You know, huh. So they had all this feedback going on, except there was one key part of the feedback loop that didn't exist. So, so it had, you know, they said they had demand control ventilation. They just didn't have uh, a mechanism to modulate the amount of outdoor air. So they weren't, you know, benefiting 
you know, from the energy. Uh, interesting. Of it all. Yeah. Very interesting. We've, we've got a break and thank our sponsors here. When I come back uh, with Dr. Persley, we're going to go into the impacts of CO2 on building occupants and then airborne infectious disease transmission, which I think are, are some topics that um, you get a little you get kind of mixed bag on, on what people are talking about. So looking forward to that. Also, I'll get to these text questions. So we'll be right back with Dr. Andy Persley. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with Dr. Andy Persley. Andy, I've got two text questions I want to try and combine here from Kishore Kankari. Um, Dr. Kankari, great to see you online here. He's asking about um, buildings are for people so so that our, our buildings should be more human-centric. And then he talks about the breathing zone of occupants is the most critical zone. After we talked the other day, I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, we, we almost have the technology now where your wristwatch should be able to tell you what your CO2 levels are for the, for the individual. Um, I'm wondering if if you're seeing any trends toward, you know, measuring right at the individual as opposed to having a remote sensor, and if you thought that would help at all. Sure. I mean, I, I people have been doing that for a long time. It wasn't Not that long ago, I read a, saw some journal paper where they were kind of measuring the CO2 concentration, like right here, you know, um, but they were kind of timing it to the breath because they didn't want to you know, have interference from the exhalation. So they were, you know, kind of measuring when the person inhaled. So they picked up, you know, the exact concentration that they, uh, um, you know, that the occupant was um, faced with. And, you know, I mean, absolutely, you know, I mean, bigger picture buildings are for people. Buildings aren't for architects to brag about the marble in the lobby. You know, buildings aren't to, uh, 
brag about your low utility bills, you know, buildings are there to support the activities of the occupant, whether it's work, school, healthcare, <clears throat> or hanging out, you know, and, uh, and ultimately, in terms of air quality, it's the air that the person breathes, you know, which the last, the last stop on the train is right here, you know, and, you know, the first stop, I guess, is the outdoor intake, you know, sometimes I feel like let's get it in the building. That's step one, you know, and that's challenging enough in some cases, you know, and, and then ultimately, yes, you got to think about the, the last stop on the train, you know, where the person is doing their inhaling. We've been hearing about personal, personal ventilation for decades, you know, where there's, you know, a vent, a local vent, you know, it's not like over there in the corner and you're, you know, you're thinking about how to deal with, you know, thermal plumes and all that to get it to the person, but it's built right in to the workstation or something. And that, that's an option, probably more of an option in, in, in some buildings and others, you know, if you're stuck behind a desk, you know, uh, it's done there. And I saw I, I, people have done that in classrooms, I guess, in lecture halls where they put it into the chair in front of them. They're, you know, they're delivering the air right there. And that has a lot of benefits in terms of the effectiveness of the ventilation. And it might even, you know, often could allow you to bring less outdoor air into the building, reduce your heating and cooling load. So, you know, it, it's a... It has certain advantages, though I will say, you know, whenever I hear about a new technology in a building, I quickly start to think who's going to take care of it. You know, we can, yeah. in a lot of buildings, the filters aren't getting changed. You know, the damp, no one's ever looking at the dampers or the sensors. And so there's a big maintenance issue already. And if we're going to put more stuff for those <clears throat> poorly funded maintenance programs to deal with, you know, I kind of won't have to wonder about that. I'll get to a couple more of these texts in a moment here. I want to get over this next section, which is the impacts of CO2 on building occupants. This is the one that's kind of been, you know, mixed results. I'm wondering, what what's your gut tell you on that one, Andy? I mean, I know you're a scientist and you want to get to the, what's your gut tell you? Is CO2 a problem or is it just telling us there's something else that there may be a problem? Well, I just read a book where it says you shouldn't trust your gut. So, uh, you know, you should, you should uh, use careful uh, exercises to come arise at some judgment call. But, you know, uh, I think, you know, less than my gut, but, you know, the research literature and the medical people, you know, I, I think historically we've all said, you know, don't worry about CO2 till you get up to 5,000 or 10,000, you know, based on, OSHA limits and, and, and so on, and people kind of poo-pooed concerns at lower levels. <clears throat> and, you know, if you look at the, the you, there are more sick building syndrome symptoms above 1,000 ppm than below, but everybody felt it wasn't the CO2, it was the fact that you had low ventilation, so the CO2 went up and every everything else went up, and that those, the everything else was causing those sick building syndrome symptoms. And it makes sense, it's real, but that's really hard to measure, you know. But, you know, um, a lot of those health studies, historical health studies are, you know, focused on occupational settings or workplaces in general. They're based on, you know, healthy white males, you know, and, and, they're, and not the general population of, 
of folks with pre-existing health conditions and the young and the old and and uh, you know so some some of the recent work you know as I mentioned earlier that showed you know some uh, impact on cognitive performance of CO2 concentrations that kind of you know uh, um, what do we call them you know typically observed concentrations a thousand ppm. That was pretty interesting and maybe even a little surprising. And, you know, my gut may have been suspicious, but what does my gut know? You know, my gut doesn't do research. And so other people did similar studies, you know, with slightly different designs and they didn't see that effect. So it's kind of like, what's going on? You know, some people have done, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, in the medical side, you measure an effect, you know, uh, on something, but you want to understand the mechanism, what's happening physiologically, you know, so some people have looked at mice, I guess, you know, and seen some things, you know, that could, you know, lead to some physiological explanations for some of those effects, but it's early, you know, there's not, uh, not a lot of data there. You know, I mean, I think if a thousand people was making people sick, sick, we see a lot, we see that, you know, because it's so common, you know, if it's slowing them down, a little bit cognitively, you know, that could be in the noise. I don't know. There's so many things that can, you know, uh, uh, reduce your cognitive performance or your work performance. There's so many things. And, you know, I, I know a lot of us, have, you know, people have experienced that over the last year, you know, getting being stuck in the basement or, right. you know, to stress, you know, uh, and, and I can't compare you know, the relative impacts of those, but uh, they appear to maybe they're subtle effects, but I think more research is needed there. And the ASHRAE position document, you know, that's not, I'm just really repeating what's in there. It's really not me, you know, and I'm not a health person. I'm an engineer and, 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 and I read some of that stuff, that health stuff and some of it, I even understand, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, it's just sometimes a little scary when you think, People were in submarines with nuclear weapons <clears throat> operating at 5,000 ppm. Is it actually affecting their their cognition in some way? And then, you know, and if it was, why haven't we seen more problems? And or maybe there have been, and we haven't haven't heard about it. Yeah, and, and you know, I haven't been in one of those uh, uh, submarines. I, I don't. I'm going to guess they're probably not the most delightful environments, right? But they got a right. job to do. And, and they don't send just anybody down there for months at a time. You know, they, I'm sure there, I would assume there's some kind of screening and, you know, I, I'm sure I would point. that screening, you know, and, uh, you know, if they screw up, uh, you know, as long as they don't push the button, if they you know, <laughs> screw up in some other way, you know, they, uh, maybe they get weeded out. I, I don't know that. I don't know that process. You know. Cliff, you had a follow-up? I, I, I do. I do. Andy, what, what's the relationship between oxygen and CO2? There, you know, the reason I ask is that, you know, there's certain people that, you know, need oxygen. So they have these little oxygen generators and mm. they can carry them around or they can put them in a room and, 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 and so on and so forth. Uh, so when CO2 is high, does that necessarily mean that the amount of available oxygen is lower than normal i don't think necessarily we're going to stay away from like confined spaces you know where people are working in some underground chamber 
you know, where with very limited ventilation, right? Because that's a whole specialty that some of our industrial hygienist friends would, would know about. You know, the, um, you know, oxygen sea level, like 21%, you know, and if you go up to Denver, it goes down, but it doesn't go down that far. And so the swings, you know, the relative swings in oxygen, I think are smaller than the relative swings in, in CO2. So while it's 400 CO2 outside, and it might be a thousand in the office, and it may be several thousand in a poorly ventilated auditorium or something, you know, relatively speaking, those are bigger swings and the oxygen is probably not going down that low. You know, I, I did, you know, I, I've seen calculations where, you know, how much air do you need to kind of maintain oxygen levels in, in the range? And it's like a, you know, maybe it's a CFM per person or something, or even less. You don't need a lot to replace the oxygen. You need more to keep the CO2 down. If, if especially if you think you know what down means, you know, where, where, where down should be. So, and, and, you know, people consume oxygen and release CO2 and, and they, there's a, you know, the ratio between those two rates is, in, in, to a large degree is a function of their diet. You know, how many fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. And I am not a physiologist or I've read a little bit about it, though I do find it interesting that they, they say that alcohol is important too, but they leave that out of the calculation. <laughs> let's let's go to airborne infectious disease mm-hmm. transmission and and CO two and 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 people were using CO two to to kind of help with determining whether there is a significant airborne infectious disease transmission potential, and and I think you want people to be cautious about that. Well, you know. Especially now, I want to, I, I want everyone to be cautious all the time, especially if they get they're getting near me, right? Um, <laughs> you know, the the uh, I'm really going to basically say what's in, what's in the position document. There's there's you know there's really two approaches to using CO2 in the context of airborne infectious disease transmission. You know, the first is really as a, a tracer gas. If you know how much ventilation you think, or you think you know how much ventilation you need to manage the risk of infection, of airborne infection, you know, and you can use CO2 as a tracer gas to kind of verify you're getting that much ventilation. And some people think you need more, you know, than is commonly recommended. Fine, you know, whatever the number is, you know, if you have occupants in the space, you can use CO2 as an indicator of that ventilation rate. So that's kind of the tracer gas approach to verifying a, a safe ventilation rate. You know, the other is using CO2 as a more uh, direct or indirect indicator of infection risk itself. And, and there's a concept that was developed several years ago called rebreathed air fraction. And the idea there is that the CO2 level in the space is a reflection of how much air in that space somebody else exhaled. You know, and if some of those somebody else's are infectious or contagious, you know, then then the CO2 will capture, you know, kind of the contagion level in the space. Um, And there's people have been been looking at that and as described in the position document, it's really important to to bear in mind that an uh, infectious aerosol behaves very differently than CO2. You know, aerosols will deposit on surfaces 
They'll get removed by filters and portable air cleaners and the CO2 won't. So it's not a one for one match and, and that these pathogens are very different. You know, some are super infectious like measles, you know, and others are less so. So, you know, uh, and CO2 doesn't know that if CO2 is representing a pathogen. It, well, well, it's not, you know, it's not going to represent, you know, a specific pathogen because they're all so different. So it's important. Again, it's, you know, it's a, it's a tool and you need to understand how you're using it and what it might tell you and what it won't tell you. And, and the position document has much more detail. And the most important thing you didn't say about the position document is it's free, right? You can go to the ASHRAE website and download it and, and, and read it. And it, it's got all the upfront material. And then it's got a really nice, detailed, heavily referenced appendix, which really digs into things. Excellent. All right. Let, let me get one more question. Then we're going to go to the roundup. Actually, it's not a question. I want to look at this online tool you helped to create. And I want, I'll ask if you could kind of walk us through what it is for folks. Yeah. And, and, and the motivation here is I mentioned earlier that all these people said, you know, and still are saying, you know, 1000 PPM, you know, that's a cutoff, you know, below a thousand PPM, everything's great. Above a thousand PPM, head for the hills, right? And and uh, you know, one thousand PPM is um, a reasonable indoor concentration. If you have a for a, corresponding to a ventilation requirement of like fifteen CFM of outdoor air per person, you know. And so, if you have a space where you want to provide fifteen CFM of outdoor air per person then you, you know, 1,000 might be a good target. Uh, but you, you, you have to assume a ventilation rate and how much CO2 the people are generating. And, and so, you know, if you look at other spaces that are more densely occupied, like a conference room or a lecture hall, 1,000 isn't the right number. You know, if, if you, you know, if you look at the standard, and I'll go, I'll, for now, we'll assume we're using the standard 62.1 ventilation rates. You know, and you make some assumptions about the people in the space and how much CO2 they're generating, you're going to get different concentrations, in some cases, well above a thousand. You know, and, and I'm not going to say the 62.1 numbers are, are right for all time, but I'm going to, I'm going to say the 62.1 numbers are the 62.1 numbers. So, what this tool allows you to do is to calculate the expected CO2 concentration that you would see in a space for a given uh, ventilation rate and for the given occupants. If you go back to that input window uh, where you were, there you go. And it has some predefined spaces. You can see some here where we put in the ventilation requirements from standard 62.1. We made some assumptions about the people, you know, their, their, their sex, their mass, their age, and how active they are. And that tells you how much CO2 they generate. And then, you know, you hit, yeah, hit results and it calculates the CO2 concentration at steady state an hour after occupancy. It tells you how long it gets to steady state. And you can do this for two different ventilation rates, kind of the, you could use a 62.1 rate and then you could enter an alternative rate just for comparison. So this allows you to, to estimate CO2 concentrations that correspond to your specific circumstances, and they're not all going to be a thousand ppm. 
And, and so, you know, the part of me was like, you know, screaming and yelling, don't use a thousand, don't use a thousand. And that's not very constructive, you know? So I got that out of my system. <laughs> it was like, you know, what should you use? Well, here's a, 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 a something to use. And so earlier we saw the a, a subset of the buildings covered by 62.1. We also have some residential occupancies as well. And while there's some predefined cases, you know, um, you know, just like miles per gallon, you know, the, the you know, mileage you realize will depend on your particular circumstances. So this is out there for people to use. And, you know, hopefully John will put the link in the, uh, there it is. John put the link up right there. So, yeah. And, and there's a report uh, that goes that describes it in a little more detail, kind of has a user's guide and kind of explains the concept behind it. Um, it's not, you know, it's, we should have a link on the website. I'm going to talk. We can put that in uh, Cliff's blog too. Yeah, but I'm going to you put that. Send me that report. Put that on the website if it isn't uh, already there. All right, well, John, let's let's go to the roundup, buddy. The roundup is brought to you by April Air providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, so for those of you that have text questions in here, I will work with Dr. Persley here, and we'll put them up on the afterthoughts.iaqradio.com site later, and Cliff will have some of this information in his blog as well. Cliff, any questions you might Want to get yeah, jump yeah, in here? Thanks, John. I, or Joe, I was just going to paraphrase one, uh, Andy. Um, you know, with, you know, one one of the questions I, I thought brought up a very practical point. You know, typically a built a building may only have one air handling system, and that supplies the air, uh, both return and supply to all the rooms. So, how practical is it? You can't really vary it, right? Uh, so, I guess how practical is really the monitoring um, with when, when you can't really, when you can't really change it on a room by room basis. Right. Right. Well, you know, I'm one, when I mean, you ask how practical it is, one air handler per building, well, it's pretty darn practical because that's what you're faced with. That's reality, right? You know, yep. you may want this and you may want that, but you know, you're, you're not going to put in a whole new, air, you know, duct system and air handling system next Monday. Right. right. You know, so you kind of got to, and there were a lot of recommendations to the, during the pandemic to up your ventilation and do this and do that. Well, you know, that's great, but you got to start with what you have and depending on this, your options are defined by where you are. So practically speaking, you know, so you have one air handler, it, it limits what you can do. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's, I guess it has the advantage if it's, it's one air handler, you know, you, in terms of maintenance and checking the dampers and changing the filters, it's a lot easier than having two per floor in a 50 story building. So, you know, but, but it, it just, you know, limits your options and, and the duct systems in place. And, you know, if you want to monitor, let's just pick on CO2 because it's the topic of the day, you know, you could measure it in the return going back to the air handler but how does it vary in the building, you know? And so, 
it, it, maybe it gives you a fair estimate of the average, but you don't want a fair estimate of the average. You want it in your office and his office and her office and putting in a lot of sensors. Um, they're, you know, they're not as expensive as they used to be. And some of them are wireless, you know, and, but then it, you know, immediately that triggers my thinking is who's going to take care of all those sensors and yeah, calibrate yeah. them. And some of them say, oh, we don't need to be calibrated. And then that's a, that, that's a pretty wonderful uh, scenario. But, uh, you know, I, I think if you want to know what's happening in that room, and if you want to know what's happening in the air that that person is breathing, there's no option, you know, you got to look there. You can't, be up in the mechanical room looking at the return airstream. You're you're probably going to miss some important uh, some important factors. Thank you. Let me um, again. We'll get to some of these questions. I'll, I'll email back and forth with Andy. But let let me go on to um, with all the work you've been part of over the years. Let's talk about some of the most important documents that would help someone managing or evaluating built spaces. Can you kind of go down the list and then we'll put links up for those documents in the, in Cliff's blog and on the uh, afterthoughts? You know, I mean, one that, you know, we, that comes to mind, kind of going back to where we started, is the, the, the analysis of the ventilation data from the base study. You know, I think that's still relevant. You know, it showed that, uh, you know, big surprise, buildings aren't always operated as, in, as intended. You know, you looked at the measured ventilation rates and the design ventilation rates, and they um, they weren't necessarily all over the place, but there was a lot of cases where the actual <clears throat> airflow in that system did not match the design intent. You know, so I would say that the base ventilation data, even though it's, I don't know, 25, that report is 20 plus years old, that's still relevant. You know, more recently, um, I wrote a review of field measurements of ventilation rates in buildings. And I think that might have been 2015 or something in that time frame. Um, and mo most recently, um, the, uh, there's this handbook of indoor air quality that was published 20 years ago. And John Spangler, and I forget, yeah, you got it. You know, you got it up here. Yeah, somebody told me, you know, that, that it was on eBay for like $700 or something. Yeah, it's not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so there's been an effort, to, you know, that's being redone. And I wrote a chapter on <clears throat> ventilation evaluation in the new handbook. And that's up there. It's also on our website since, since I'm a federal employee, you know, what I write can't be copyrighted by anyone else, has to be publicly available. So this chapter on ventilation assessment in the new IAQ handbook, I think is, could be useful to people. It is not a cookbook. It's more of a menu, right? The cookbook would have to be like hundreds of pages long. And this was like a 20 page limit, but it kind of lays out why you do it, why you would do evaluate ventilation, what are the performance issues? What are the parameters? And what are some of the measurement methods? And when do you think that will be coming out? My chapter's out now. You know, that's okay. on the, uh, if I didn't send you the link, I can. I think that's we do have the link. If I don't have it, I'll let you know. You know, now, you know, since everything I do is paid for by the taxpayers, everything I do has to be 
you know, made publicly available. So that's on the NIST website. If you can't, what about it. the revised book? Is that out yet? I, I think what they're doing is, um, I'm not sure it is, you know, I, I, uh, um, I know they're kind of doing a chapter at a time and, and they've got to be making money. Right. So they must be selling some of this stuff. So I'm not sure exactly how they're doing it. They were, posting chapters as they were wrapped up, but I do not know the later. I think it's Springer Publishing. Is, okay. Uh, is so it's right around the corner anyway. And some of the stuff is definitely done already. The other thing I wanted to ask before we go, um, I always ask this of people like yourself, you know, that have been involved for many years in this industry. What, what do you see as um, kind of like up and coming issues with respect to indoor air quality? Yeah, let me close that. So I just posted that link, and I this is not an, an, an endorsement by NIST or the federal government of Springer Publishing or anything, blah, blah, blah. Some of the trends, you know, I mean, sensors are getting cheaper and more numerous and more powerful and, in some sense, more exciting, right? So, uh, you know, low-cost sensors, you know, and though, you know, if you're going to measure all this stuff, what are you going to do with all that data? It's very easy to you know, there's all these people who bought these cool devices and they put them on their coffee table and they have friends over for a beer and they point at it. And But what do you do with that? You know, and the light goes red or light goes green. I, I don't know what to do with it. But, you know, low cost, uh, you know, Internet of Things and all that stuff. Obviously, you know, the pandemic is is huge and it's, an, uh, it's brought indoor air quality and ventilation, you know, center stage again. You know, we've always known it's important. We've always known that it's important to keep your ventilation system in tune and to deal with indoor air quality issues. That's not a surprise for anyone here, you know, and, and you know, is it more important now? You know, perhaps it is, but at least there's more awareness. You know, I, I think, was, was it last week? I can't keep track of time anymore, but there was a White House event stressing the importance of indoor air quality, which has never happened before. And, and, you know, we're sometimes our, you know, our, uh, the way we do things in this world is kind of motivated by the crisis of the day, you know, and so you got to seize the opportunity because, you know, we're not always, we always have a long view, you know. So, and another crisis may be right around the corner. So, yeah, yeah. The tension changes quickly, but I, I yeah. you brought up a good point with that. That was a, that was a very good uh, event they had. We'll, we'll put the link up to that. The White yeah, House had uh, Joe yeah, Allen was on yeah. there. And, and I think, you know, there are, I'll, I'll kind of lump them all together, you know, climate change and resilience, you know, uh, are other, I guess, important trends. You know, if it's getting warmer outside or there's more big storms and there's more flooding, you know, kind of dealing with those, uh, whether, you know, they're kind of, acute intense disasters or longer term changes and you know th that's a whole list of issues really but it's it's uh you know that that's all pretty important stuff and it doesn't you know not everyone gets suffers those consequences equally real real quick i, I i'm running a little over but um what's NIST What's currently on the on the docket at NIST? What are, what are you in your your division there? Your, your former division, I guess it would be. What are, what are they working on? 
Yeah, I mean, a big, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm going to forget something, but there, a big area is integrating buildings with a smart grid, right? You know, so the, you know, the modern electric utility structure, you know, it's, it's going to change and there's more renewables and more storage. And then, you know, how do you integrate buildings with that? You know, and a lot of it is, is really data exchange and, and interoperability. Um, you know, that's a big area. Another thing that the vision is working on is low global warming uh, potential refrigerants. You know, the current refrigerants are being phased out based on climate concerns. And that's not a political thing. The industry is doing that, you know, internationally. And some of those newer refrigerants are mildly flammable, you know, and, and so they're NIST is working on how do you measure that flammability, which is really hard, and how do you predict it? And because a lot of what the industry is going to do is going to be mixtures of refrigerants, you know, to optimize the energy performance and, and flammability. And, and how do you predict the, the performance of a refrigerant mixture? There's a, there's a lot of people working on that. You know, I, I'm kind of not really talking that much about indoor air quality. You know, I'm talking about some of the other other issues. Well, we also deal a lot with building science, and those issues are, are right up oh, there, you know, with uh, some of the current concerns with people. I, I Sure. And it's it's just fascinating. I don't think people think about what, like, measurement, the way people at NIST do. You know? <laughs> How do you measure time? How do you yeah. measure the size of things? And, and is it accurate? And is it reproducible? And I think it's fascinating to talk about those things. Not, you know, and it's not just interesting. I mean, you know, the GPS technology wouldn't exist if you couldn't measure time accurately, you know, and, and you would never get these small, you know, uh, microelectronics and nanoelectronics if you couldn't measure distance accurately. So it's really, you know, it, it affects everyone's everyday life. And your next broadcast you should have a trivia question people can't use the web but you know what are the seven you know si units the fundamental si units because that, you know, that's go. international and they you know in the old days they were based on objects on artifacts and they just within the last couple of years they retired the last artifact the the kilogram that was in paris they don't use that anymore you know and there's no more you know, I mean, they didn't throw in the trash, but they don't base, you know, mass measurements on that kilogram anymore. And they don't measure based on that meter stick. They're using, you know, the wavelengths of lights and fundamental constants of, of physics so that, you know, it's much more transferable and, and more accurate. So I'm kind of drifting off the SI stuff, but the seven SI units, everybody should know those and uh, they're hard to remember. All right. Don't well, ask me. Uh... We'll put that in the in the blog, Cliff, if you can. And uh, Cliff, any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, I will. I will. And trying to you know put together a trivia question today. I had no idea that NIST, uh, you know, the roots of that go back to you know the founding of the country and having accurate coinage and measurement of of, of the coins and uh, purity of the metal and, and and so on and so forth. I mean, it goes like way back to like the seventeen hundreds, you know. So. Well, then there's, there's there's a story, you guys talked about, yeah, go ahead. There's a story, I don't even know if it's true, and I'm even sure it's partially true, that there was a big fire in Baltimore, and all these fire departments from different places in the region, they came there, and they pull out their hoses, and they wouldn't connect. You know, oh, my. Was using a different pipe fitting, and that was like, oh, you know, there's a, uh, 
standardization issue. Your last discussion made me think back to grains per pound. You know, what is a grain? And and <laughs> at one time was based on, I believe, a, a grain of rye or something like that. But uh, it's just fascinating what, uh, you know, things that get passed on year after year after year and people don't realize where it came from. And then uh, this job is, I guess, to make it science. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a pretty cool museum there, you know, kind of, sh- and, and, you know, you know, some of these objects that, you know, people used way back when to measure this for the first time or, or, or that for the first time. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. And again, as I said earlier, the, the older you get, the more you like history, right? I hear, you. I hear you. Well, thank you, Andy. Dr. Andy, personally, we appreciate you joining us this week on IAQ Radio. Uh, very interesting show, kind of drifting in a different way than I expected, but that's that's great. Uh, we appreciate it, and hopefully we'll get you back before it's 12 more years. Yeah, I'm going to be harder to find in 12 years, so, but good, good, to, you know, good to see everybody, and, and uh, hope it was interesting. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Andy Persley, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith that the controls uh, our growing group of loyal listeners. Also, um, next week, we're going to do a flashback show to, to Dr. Persley's first show with us. Uh, we're going to do that for the Good Friday weekend. And then in two weeks, we've got Elliot Gall from the University of Portland. And uh, we're going to talk to him and Dr. Gall about a couple interesting new papers he's had out and I uh, look forward to talking to everybody then please come back in next week for our flashback and two weeks for the next live show of IAQ radio plus for IAQ radio. I'm Spike real saying thanks for listening.